how is the faith to be passed on to the next generation? It's a question we've been trying to answer in this series. And to accomplish this, we're looking at Paul's first letter to Timothy. I've said this before, but I want to make it clear that I don't think that Paul wrote these letters with the question of how to pass the faith on to the next generation. Instead, he was instructing Timothy, those who are reading the letter over his shoulder, so to speak, how it is that God's people are supposed to behave, particularly in light of the problems that are going on in the church in Ephesus with false teaching and wrong behavior. But Paul's directions, Paul's instructions and corrections provide, I think, for us a manual or a series of principles that can guide us and help us answer the question, how do we keep the faith alive in this generation and then pass it on to the next? Thus far, we've seen a number of principles, and just to review them very briefly, the first, this is in chapter one, right off the bat, the church, the body of Christ, those who are called by God, may have in their midst those who behave badly and those who believe wrongly. That's why Paul's writing this letter. The second principle in chapter 2 is we are not to think in terms of us versus them. We are to pray for everyone and the gospel is to be shared with everyone. The third principle, also from the second chapter, is that we are to read the whole story. Far too many who claim to believe the Bible have not read the Bible. An error, I think, is a real possibility when only a portion is read or studied, failing to take into account the context the immediate as well as the larger context. The fourth principle we saw at the beginning of chapter 3, the qualifications for Christian leadership may be quite different from what we expect, certainly from the surrounding culture. As we saw when we went through this, Paul gives us the qualifications of the elder or the overseer, not the duties, because he's trying to correct the problem, not instruct. And secondly, most of the qualifications reflect outward observable behavior. A part of me gets a bit nervous at this because it seems like it might lead to legalism. Um, But in fact, the gospel is to be seen in our behavior. And the standards that Paul gives us in chapter 3 are biblical, not man-made. Legalism oftentimes, though not exclusively, is based on man's rules. Just something to correct, uh, I want to correct that I said last Sunday. Um, it's something that I heard mentioned uh, by Os Guinness years ago. He said, if a man is drunk on wine, you'll kick him out of the church. If he's drunk on money, you'll make him a deacon. I think I said elder last week, um, and I meant to say deacon. Uh, you'll make him a deacon. This is quite different from what Paul tells us here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Both forms of drunkenness are not to be found in leadership and in service. We are not to be drunk on wine, but neither are we to be drunk on money as well. Speaking of deacons, in verses 8 through 13 of chapter 3, Paul deals with the qualifications of deacons. And again, he does not deal with their duties, but their qualifications. And from this, we found two additional principles. The first, which is actually the fifth principle in this book, is that just as there are qualifications for Christian leadership, there are qualifications for Christian service. And for all the debate about what a deacon is supposed to do, what is the function of a deacon, there can be no question about the qualifications for someone who is a deacon. Simply put, servants or those who serve must consider how they behave and what they do. You'll remember that what Paul does in giving the list 
is that the second list, that is for deacons, is very similar to the first list, that for elders. Um, They both deal with observable behavior. And, And just one thing, parenthetically, in an age that worships things like efficiency, uh, we must take care that we don't, not, not only do we reject or not only do we not take on the world's standards of leadership, this is what a leader is supposed to be like, but neither are we to take on the world's standards of what servanthood or service is. The sixth principle, what we saw last week, is that all of God's people, that is God's household, are to be servants. As I mentioned last week, I think some people read 1 Timothy 3 with a certain sense of relief that Thank goodness this doesn't apply to me because I'm not going to be an elder. I'm not going to be a deacon. So these don't apply to me. Um, I'm convinced that we all need to meet these qualifications. And that's why verse number 11 of chapter 3, I'm convinced should be translated deaconess, um, not wife of the deacon. That in fact, Paul is saying that all people in the congregations must, in fact, have these qualifications. This is how we are supposed to live. Our behavior is supposed to reflect the gospel. So no believer should ever say, I don't want to have to be worthy of respect. I want to be double-tongued. I want to indulge in much wine, or anything else for that matter. I want to pursue dishonest gain. I want to be a malicious talker. I want to be intemperate. I don't want to have to be trustworthy. No. No Christian should think or say, I don't want to be held to a certain standard. The fact that we belong to God's household, we are his children, that implies very strongly that there is certain behavior that is required of us. So in the list that Paul gives us of leadership and service, um, we see that they're very, very similar and these are the things that are to mark God's people. But, but why should we be concerned about these qualifications? Well, because we are a part of God's household. If you look at verses 14 and 15, Paul writes, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. And the second reason why we should be concerned about these qualifications is we have been entrusted with the truth. And this is what Paul talks about in verse number 16. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. So it does matter how we behave, our observable behavior. Because we have been entrusted with something precious. Now, I don't think that God has entrusted us with these things because we are such wonderful people. But the reality is, because we have been entrusted with these things, we should, in fact, live as God calls us to. Today we come to chapter 4. And in this chapter, Paul elaborates with a bit more detail two matters that he brought up in chapter 1. The nature of the errors of the false teachers. And then secondly, why Timothy is in Ephesus, what his role is there. Today we'll look at the first section, the first five verses. Um, And here we find Paul saying that the appearance of these false doctrines, these doctrines of demons, should not come as a surprise. Secondly, 
he tells us that the true source of these teachings is, in fact, demonic. And thirdly, he gives some specifics about these errors and why, in fact, they are errors. Follow along, if you would, as I read the first five verses here in 1 Timothy 4. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. I want to mention only briefly the nature of the errors that Paul talks about. Um, in a real sense, we don't know what the exact nature was. Um, and I don't want to focus on... But I, I think it's fairly straightforward in that in verse number three, they forbid people to marry. And secondly, they tell people to abstain from certain foods. And from chapter one, I think this might be the kosher laws, saying that there are certain things you can't eat. Um, but remember, he is writing to people, he's writing to Timothy, Timothy knows the situation. And so Paul doesn't have to elaborate. Paul is not writing First Timothy for me, he's writing it to Timothy. And so he doesn't go into a lot of detail. What I do want to focus on um, is that one of the keys to understanding First Timothy is that Paul's letter is corrective in nature, not predictive or not instructive per se. That is, as Paul writes this, he is trying to correct a situation. There is a situation that exists, and we can sort of reconstruct it by the things that Paul says as he seeks to correct that situation. And I think this is important because when we come to the first verse of this chapter, many people tend to read it, uh, at least for the last century or so, with the assumption that Paul is talking about something in the distant future. That, in fact, that this, he's somehow putting on the, the robe or the hat of prophet at this point and talking about something that will happen in the distant future. Um, in light of what Paul is writing, to write of the distant future would be of no benefit whatsoever to Timothy or those in Ephesus. Paul is speaking of what is going on in Ephesus right then a situation that needs to be corrected, and that's why he's writing this to Timothy. The phrase that throws people is, in latter times. If you look, uh, or later times, some translations have latter times, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith. Now, when we hear this, I think because of the culture most of us were raised in the church, living when and where we do, we tend to think this means the end of time that this is right before Jesus comes back, these things will happen. But we have seen that this is, in fact, not how it is used in the New Testament. What the New Testament writers call us to do is to have a different perspective of reality and of time. That is to say, the image that always comes to mind is when you're trying to learn how to swim, or you see someone teaching their kid how to swim, and they say, okay, swim to me. 
And then they sort of move away and they move away. And so the, the, the kid sort of learns how to swim farther and farther away. Well, there's a big difference between swimming in a swimming pool where there's one end and the other end and swimming in the ocean in which there is no end. It just sort of goes on. Well, with the coming of Jesus, that's one end of the pool, if you wish. That is, the, it marks time. And Jesus, in fact, one day will return. That marks the other end. And in the New Testament, we find that we are living in that time, and it is referred to as the last days, or here, the later times. There is a beginning and there is an ending. And because we know that Jesus is coming back, it should, in fact, change the way we look at things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says something that's rather startling. He says, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. Again, for those who think that the second coming is going to happen at any moment, which in fact it may, but I don't think that's what Paul is saying. And so people say, well, either Paul was really mistaken, because here we are 1900 years later, or he means something different. I think he means something different. And that is because Jesus has come into the world and because Jesus will return to this world. We live in a time in which our, uh, our apprehension, the way we view time, has been compressed. There is a beginning and an end. It's like swimming in a pool. You know that there's an end coming. It's not like being in the ocean and you just go on and on and on and on. And, and there is, in fact, no ending. This is why the coming of Jesus is one of the reasons why his coming into the world is so important. It, in fact, starts the clock ticking for the last hours, the last days. John will say it is the last hour. We're like, are you kidding me? I mean, here we are 19 centuries later. But he's talking about the fact that Jesus has come into the world and that has started the clock ticking. And we are now winding down to the end of time. So let me just read to you some passages um, that speak of this. First of all, the, the incarnation. And if nothing else, I think these verses would settle it for me. The beginning of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In First Peter chapter 1, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So the coming of Jesus is seen as coming in the last days. The gift of the Spirit, when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And what are those days? They are, in fact, the last days. And then our actions, our sins are seen as taking place in the context of the last days from James chapter five. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. In other words, you know that Jesus has come and that Jesus is coming again. You know when you live, you live in the last days. And yet this is the way you have behaved. And then one last passage that you may be familiar with from Second Peter 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. 
It is this last passage where we fit in. Let us be clear. Either the apostles were just really, really mistaken that they thought the second coming was going to happen in the first century. Or they understood what I've been saying, and that is that the coming of the Messiah began the clock ticking. And now we are in the last days. That is the case, then our thinking should be radically different. And here we come to the principle. This is the seventh principle for keeping the faith alive and passing it on to the next generation. We are to realize that we live between the time of Jesus' incarnation and his return. What the New Testament tells us about the last days is generally true about that period of time. That is between the incarnation and return. In Timothy's days, there were those who had abandoned the faith. They were following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. They were hypocritical liars with consciences seared as with a hot iron. They were forbidding people to marry and they were ordering them to abstain from certain foods. Now, some people might imagine that he's Paul is talking about another time. And I say, no, he's talking about that time. Have there been other times when this has been true? Absolutely. And I think that whenever Christians live, they tend to think that their time is perhaps the most wicked of all time that has ever been. That it's worse than any other time. And that the spiritual decline is greater than it's ever been before. And it may or may not be. Whatever it is, it doesn't mean that Jesus is coming back because things are so bad. I think people read this first verse and they think, ah, this is it. Things are so bad, this must mean that Jesus is coming back because of these things. We're not given hints as to when Jesus is going to come back. For all those who have tried to predict, we're not told. What we are told is how we are supposed to live between these two realities. What has we've called the already, Jesus has come into the world, but the not yet, Jesus has not yet returned. Something definitive has happened in history. God has come in the flesh. Verse number 16 of the previous chapter. More than that, something definitive has happened. We have become the people of God by God's grace. But there is so much more yet to come. It's not the end of the story. The final words have not yet been spoken. Things are not yet as they should be. But one day things will be made right. When Jesus returns, when we went through the book of Galatians, we saw this, particularly in the last chapter. Um, Paul tells the Galatians that in the light of the already and not yet, we're living in between these two realities, what they are supposed to do. The first is they are to stand firm. They are to stand firm in the already. They are to affirm what is true. Already, Jesus has broken into history. Already, Jesus has fulfilled the law. Already, we have been united By faith in Jesus. Already we are the children of God. Already the Spirit lives within us. Already we can call God Abba. So we are to stand firm in these truths. The second thing is, but we are to wait in the Spirit. This is the not yet. It's already these things are true, but the story isn't finished. And so there's the not yet. By faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. There is more to come. And then the third thing that Paul tells the Galatians 
is that they are to live lives of faith expressing itself in love. This is from Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The purpose of Paul writing this letter, and particularly this passage to Timothy, is to let him know that what is happening should not be unexpected. It certainly is not unexpected for Paul. In a sense, we go back to the first principle that he began this book with. The church, the body of Christ, may have people who behave badly and who believe wrongly. Unfortunately, for some time now in the church, people have taken that as a sign that Jesus is coming back, that, that, that the return is almost here because things are so bad. And as a result, the focus of the church, and in many ways the mission of the church, has changed significantly because that's how people are thinking. They're thinking, things are so bad, Jesus is coming back. There's almost this panic that has set in, and the focus and the mission of the church I think has become less biblical than it should because people think that Jesus, well, that all of these things are a sign that the second coming is going to happen immediately. In a real sense, the church has not for some time now thought in terms of passing the faith on to the next generation. I think, particularly of my generation, we were convinced that there would not be another generation. We thought we were it. This is it. We're the last generation. Jesus is coming back. Let's be clear. Jesus is coming back. But we don't know when. We're not told when. We're told not to try to predict it. What we are told is how we are to live our lives. And that's why Paul writes what he does to Timothy. And so in many ways, my generation and the generation before me, I would say, in many ways made no effort to try to pass the faith on to the next generation. Yeah, they tried to get people saved. But in terms of teaching and training, I think in many ways that, that was de-emphasized because any, Jesus is coming back. Why would you want to train people when, in fact, the second coming is going to happen at any moment? Now, I say my generation because I'm older than many of you. I find it interesting that I don't hear so much now about the second coming as in the past. In the church. But what I do find in the culture is this sense of the apocalypse, that we're waiting for the apocalypse. Uh, in a recent book by Douglas Rushkoff, it's, which is called Present Shock, when everything happens now, he points to five things in which present shock manifests itself. The last one he calls apocalypto. It's a belief in the eminent shift of humanity into an unrecognizable different form. And in that chapter, Rushkoff talks about the preppers who have assumed that catastrophe is eminent and the best way through is to prepare for the inevitable collapse of civilization as we know it. They expect a complete breakdown in their own lifetimes, possibly due to avian flu, asteroid, nuclear accident or war, terrorist attack, or other things. But he argues, as do Matthew Barrett and Mel uh, Gillis in their book, The Last Myth, we can wait forever while the world unravels before our very eyes for the apocalypse that won't come. 
That is to say, instead of living their lives as regular, ordinary people, as mature people, if you wish, having a sense of this is what I need to do now, they keep waiting for the apocalypse. And so in the meantime, these things aren't being done that need to be done. I think you could say that the same thing is true of the church that slowly loses its way and fails to pass the faith on to the next generation, believing that the second coming must happen at any moment. And so why would we bother passing the faith on? This is it. This is the end of time. This is Jesus is coming. Why would we bother to pass it on to the next generation? I'm not saying that Jesus return will not happen in my lifetime. And I'm not saying that there may not be a complete social breakdown in my lifetime, as there has been in the past. Let me just remind you of some things. Uh, The Black Death, which happened between 1347 and 1350, resulted in the deaths of an estimated 75 to 200 million people. The influenza epidemic in 1918 to 1920. Um, Interesting enough, more people died in the first year of that influenza epidemic then died in the Black Death from 30, uh, 47 to 50, at least in the opinion of some people. World War I had just been finished. 16 million people died in World War I. But then the flu epidemic, the influenza ac- epidemic, swept across the planet and 50 million people died of the flu. And then there are the genocides of the 20th century. And I'm thinking here not of those that are normally mentioned, but let's say uh, Stalin and the 10 million who were who starved to death between 32 and 33 or in Mao's China, where between 50 and 70 million people died between 45 and 76. I'm not saying that these things can't happen. I'm not saying that the big one won't come and that many of us will perish. What I am saying is that we are to pass the faith on to the next generation by obeying the great commandment, and that is we are to love the Lord our God and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. You will notice that in verses 3, 4, and 5, Paul points out the fallacy of the errors, these false teachings, by mentioning creation, gratitude, and prayer. Look, if you would, at verses 3, 4, and 5 which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. You see, it is in the Christian account of creation and redemption that we are to see that those who are made in the image of the creator, whose primary attribute is love, that Our sense of freedom, our sense of dignity, our calling in life is to be rooted in love. Not simply our own choosing, our own self-assertion. We should really take to heart what Paul mentions twice in this passage, by the way. God as creator. And then our proper response, which is gratitude and prayer. Let me go back to Rushkoff's book. I was struck... Uh, in this chapter, he pointed to the rise of zombie movies and TV shows as reflecting an apocalypto uh, way of thinking. He focuses on The Walking Dead, which is the highest rated basic cable drama. It's a post-zombie apocalypse show. He writes, zombies are the perfect horror creations for media-saturated age in which we are overloaded with reports of terrorism, famine, disease, and warfare. 
Zombies tap into our primal fear of being consumed or force us to come up with something, anything, to distinguish ourselves from every hungry animated corpse traipsing about the countryside and eating flesh. And then later on he says, in The Walking Dead as well, we are to question who are the who truly are the ones who have lost their humanity, whatever they might have been. He concludes, we have no morality separating us from brute nature or even lifeless matter, so we humans may as well be walking dead. I see a common thread, interestingly enough, between post-apocalyptic books and movies, the preppers as seen on TV, and I must confess to having watched some of those shows, zombie movies and TV shows, and Christian prophetic beliefs. Not all, but certainly some. What I see is almost a, is a lack, an almost total lack of love. A love of one's neighbor. There are love stories within them, within the narratives. But there seems to be no love of one's neighbor. There are exceptions. I was struck uh, watching it again this week. Um, in the Hunger Games, that what Katniss does in befriending Rue, who is her enemy, because they have to kill each other to survive, her love for neighbor is literally revolutionary, which comes through much more in the movie than it does in the book, because that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to want to kill somebody. You're not supposed to want to help them or show any love for them. Preppers are preparing for their families. They do not plan to share with others, even arming themselves to keep others at bay. And I remember I watched one particular episode in which two people wanted to join this preppers commune, I guess you'd call it. And the test for them to see whether or not they could come in was whether or not they could shoot guns and kill people. Um, doesn't seem to show any love of one's neighbor. But even in the church, oftentimes, when people speak of end times, I don't hear any love of one's neighbor. It's more like, we're going to make it and you all are toast. But what if it doesn't happen in our lifetime? Or in the lifetime of our children? Or our grandchildren? Thinking that it's so self-centered and so selfish so as to be devoid of love of one's neighbor, cannot be right. We are called on, we are commanded to love our neighbors, even in the last days. Not to abandon all others to ensure our survival. By the way, let's say that the big apocalypse does happen and you survive. Will you not one day die yourself? We are to love our neighbors. Does that mean all our neighbors are lovable? Not at all. Some of our neighbors may not be good people. So Paul tells Timothy that in the latter days, some will abandon the faith. Some, in fact, will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. And some will be hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Not a pretty picture, but this is what was going on in Ephesus. Paul told Timothy, you should not be surprised by this. 
But when we go back to the first chapter, we are to be guided by the great command that we are to love our neighbors. So in the light of who, people who have abandoned the faith, who follow deceiving spirits, who are hypocritical liars, who forbid marriage, who order abstaining from certain foods, what is Timothy supposed to do? We won't look at it today, but I want to read it. Look, if you would, as I read verses 6 through 16. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through the prophetic message when the, elders, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And the Lord willing, next Sunday, we will examine what Paul tells Timothy he should do in the light of what has happened in the later times, the days in which we live. So, what are we to take from this passage? What can we do to pass the faith on to the next generation? We are to realize that we live between the time of Jesus' incarnation and his return. And events should not distract us from that reality. We should not imagine or think that we can calculate when Jesus will return. We should not imagine that the time in which we live is more difficult than any other time. It may in fact be, but I think that that's a non-issue. Wherever we live, whenever we live, there will be difficulties, including in the church, false teaching and bad behavior. So what are we to do? How are we to teach our children in this matter? How are we to pass the faith on to the next generation? We should tell them, as Paul tells the Galatians, that we are to stand firm in the already. We are to wait through the spirit for the not yet. And we are to live lives of faith, expressing itself in love. To go back to Rushkoff's book, in the earlier part of the book, he says, all this focus on the future did not do much for our ability to contend with the present. Companies spent more money and energy on scenario planning than on basic competency. That is, they're trying to predict what the market will be like. Uh, how about putting out a good product right now? What about doing your job right now? And I think that's happened to the church in the last two or three generations, maybe more. The focus has been so much on the future, there hasn't been a sense of what are we supposed to do right now? How are we supposed, what kind of lives does God want us to live right now? And in doing that, I think we have something to pass on to the next generation so that they will know how they are supposed to live. And then they in turn can pass it on to the generation after them. 
Let's pray together. Our Father, again, we confess that we are broken and our sense of time often often is messed up. You've put us here in the present and yet oftentimes we long for the past or we look to the future. Perhaps in both cases we neglect the present. Help us to see that every present, if you wish, has its difficulties, even among your people. But you've called on us to be faithful and to live lives of faith that is expressed in love. Sadly, I think for the last century, the public reputation of your church has not been one of love. perhaps because it has not taken the center place that it should. Instead, we've been looking to the future, neglecting the present, neglecting those around us. If we are to keep the faith alive in this generation and pass it on to the next one, may we see the centrality of love. That we who are made in your image, the creator who created because of his great love, that we are to be marked by love as well. By your spirit, may we think on these things in the days to come. I thank you that you've brought us together to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.